0: You're listening to Future
1: Theater Radio with Bill and Nancy Burns, right here on the Dark Matter Radio Network and PSN
2: Hey, everybody, on a beautiful summer evening. We are your co hosts, Bill, that's me, and Nancy. Hi, Bill, this is Nancy, but also Bella Haven. Burns on Future Theater Live, (laughs) brought to you on the Dark Matter (laughs) Digital Network and PSN Radio from the glorious banks of Primrose Creek in beautiful downtown Solberry Village, Pennsylvania. On July 27th, 2015, the last Monday. In July, our guest tonight, but first our producer, is Angel Espino. Say hello, Angel.
1: Hello, Angel. I almost Aren't forgot. Glad? <laughs> yeah. I thought y'all were going to forget me for a second. I was like, Buenos no noches,
2: Angel? Angel. Buenas
1: noches. Como
2: An- And our guest tonight is Mr. UFO himself. Tim Beckley. Happy to have Tim on. Indeed,
3: Mr. UFO. I believe he gave himself the name, if I'm not
2: mistaken. Well, there's another guy. Is it legit
1: then? If you give yourself the name, is like a legit title.
2: Oh, my God. Are you the Jackal?
3: Are you the Jackal? Are you not the
1: Jackal? No, but I didn't didn't give myself that name. Who Uh gave you that name, by the way? My friend who passed away about 20 years ago.
2: Oh, and why did he give you that name?
1: Really? You want to go into that story now? Oh, why not? why not? Why not? There's
3: only the newest, biggest audience we've ever had because Art Bell has returned to the airwaves. And tonight is his first show of this new brand new second week. Correct. <coughs> yeah. And I can tell you now because it's been announced that his guest will be Graham. Grant.
2: Grant, Grant. Cameron. Grant Grant yeah. Cameron Graham
3: Hancock. The first oh, week was
2: last week, right? Right. Yes. Right,
3: right. So first there was a Graham, and now there's a Grant Cameron, a, a absolutely solid citizen in the UFO field. It's going to be really hard to find some fault with him, if Bella Haven does that sort of thing after the show, after our show. You can listen to Bella Haven. Well, the Haven. thing about Grant, uh, you a can go to Grant Cameron,
2: uh, Grant Cameron, who who we've had on the show, wow. has written a lot of stuff. <laughs> Grant uh, Grant Cameron. Grant Camera Specialty, we did a whole UFO magazine issue on Grant called All the President's That's right. UFOs. And, and we've uh, had him
3: on uh, Future Theater here a couple times. Yes. You have wow. a bullet. Beep, beep, That's beep, it. beep, That's beep, it. Beep, That's beep, it. beep, beep, Yes. Beep,
0: beep. Yes, Bulletin. I've got Bulletin.
3: Thank you. Thank you for bringing me back to the current moment. Uh, from Tim Beckley himself, Mr. UFO himself. He says, actually, Kiss the Rock Band gave him the name. So there you go. Oh, okay. Way better. So he wow. did not name go. himself. He did not name himself, which would, you know. And then so we were doing the Jackal story real, f- real fast. Let's, okay, so what's let's, the bullet? Let's finish it up. That was it. That was it. Beckley did not name himself. He oh. got his name from Kiss, the okay. rock band. Kiss Very rock
2: good, band. Tim. Very good.
1: Well, I that like makes that. it legit then. That makes it all. It is. It
3: yeah. is. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's also in the Skype. Tim just put it in the Skype. Tim is on Skype like any other citizen. I remember when Tim first contacted us, when we were first dealing with him, he insisted on going through a thing called uh, the first, it was like Me TV. or It was when Apple made a TV top computer and you had like two channels. Like one was AOL and the rest was God knows what. So Tim was actually using that to work with. He, he was like the first person to adopt it and the last person to give it up. Do you remember that TV
2: thing? It was I, a set box. It, it was, a set it, box. it was, it was web. It was called web TV or something. Yeah. that was, the was Pre, other pre-, was pre- YouTube,
1: it. right? Pre YouTube.
2: It was pre oh, YouTube. It was the other pre- person who pre- was pre- using pre- it, pre- way pre- no, YouTube. the other person who was using it was, um, what's his face? Victor Martinez. He was really? using web TV forever.
3: Wow. And see, that's the thing. Tonight, we're going to talk about the history of UFO publishing, and these things are very, very relevant because Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, literally has been there. He basically picked up the mantle of the man, the man that's had the greatest impact on our civilization after uh, L. Ron Hubbard, science fiction-wise, is this guy named Ray Palmer.
2: Oh yes, Ray Palmer hmm. very right. very important guy. Oh, and, uh, yeah, he made vitally his, important guy. He
3: made his bones when a guy named Richard Shaver came to him and said, "You know, I'm drilling in the mine with my drilling thing, well, you know that boop 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 thing that guys right? use." And I and he began wow. to, you a
2: jackhammer? Yes. <laughs> oh man.
3: And Tim will tell it much better, but basically yes. uh, in fact, let's leave it for Tim. It's a manly let's leave story. It is a it is ama- still I- indeed yeah, we still talk about these things, and I'm going to make available to our future theater listeners and also other friends uh, the actual Richard Shaver uh, entire manuscript. It's, real, it's public domain, and it's super cool. And I want to talk to Tim. Uh, another plug for my own self is about the Hyperzine if he wants to talk about it because he came along with us for the filament ride, and he's here to tell you it was a great, great ride. He had a great
2: time, and he is Mr. Mr. UFO Publishing, basically. I will, ca- right. I will name him. Tim that. was there. At the, Tim was there at the dawn of modern UFO publishing. There were books, there were magazines, all the way back in the nineteen fifties, and the late nineteen forties. But Tim was there in the beginning of modern UFO publishing. Well, so, now we
3: join the impressive. ranks. We we join his ranks of now those former publishers who have boxcars. We have two storage facilities full. Mm wall to ceiling of paper product and so does tim he's got a box car a box car full of books because he's been a publisher so long exactly you know and so he has stories he's he's the guy who kind of made put men in black after john keel into the so in other words tim is sort of like the ray palmer of our modern era whether he says so or not and i don't think he's going to be shy
0: no
2: i don't think so either so what uh so um One of the big topics that I have, which is fascinating to me, is there is an article. It is talking about how um, Steve Wozniak was and Elon Musk, Elon, and Stephen Hawking, as well as a number of other scientists and computer scientists, have gotten a letter, have gotten together to write this letter. And it's a dire warning letter. About the use of artificial intelligence and robotics to remove from human beings the trigger finger, the <clears throat> trigger for weapons. So computers assess the target, lock the target, direct which launch platform will be used, and which type of weapon would used, and then but wait, order a firing, and but then wait, order of fire. This,
3: what is to stop computers from looking at us as a kind of a fungus among well, us? Well,
1: they don't exactly, need us. Like Agent Smith in The Matrix.
2: Right, no, that's exactly what, that is exactly what uh, Charles Osman, who's been our guest a few times, has said. That if the computers had an algorithm to clean the planet, to basically... R- remove pollutants from the planet and right. reverse climate change. Yeah, he says first thing they would look I at. I think it's would but for. Human I, I
3: think it's but for If you don't, if you forget to put the but four in there or something like that, there's some yeah. kind of a, a thing you have to put in legally as well as making the program work. It's like we live on a we live in a program anyway. But there's a well, but su- four in there, right? Well, supposedly
2: that's what Isaac Asimov did with yeah, the exactly. three laws of exactly. robotics. Yeah, wow, but.
3: Well Absent okay so to, uh, give us to a little laws. more a little more background on this. When did this proclamation come from these uh, in other words, is this a l-
2: open letter to the public is it' this is an open le- no this is an open letter to the military and to the scientific community um who's developing artificial intelligence. but the bad news I have for those dudes is that it's too late too little, it's- too late. It's already happened. No, it's not too little. It's you know silly. what the com-
3: you know what the computer itself said? T L semicolon did didn't read too long. Didn't read. That's well, computer ease for go away. Too little, too
2: late. But it's already happened. That's the whole point.
1: That is that the point. That Nancy. Yep.
2: That, wow. That's the well, point. That in the for uh, for example, in the F thirty five in in this new brand new plane we have it. There is a computer program which directs, which connects a number of planes in a formation and directs which planes are going to fire and what gets fired at a target. Hmm. So yes, a pilot can intervene. It's kind of like cruise control. You can intervene, step on a brake, stop it. But as Jim Sanders wait wait wait
3: might this be the reason for the whole series revolution which we just discovered that you have to turn everything off in order to keep the programs from taking over
2: well i will bet that's one of i will bet that's one of them um,
3: angel have you seen that series which we revolution completely, we it's completely revolution. missed
1: i have not but i've been wanting to see it
3: oh, oh. my goodness i'm i'm you know it okay jj abrams i guess he's mr lost right
1: and he's Mr. Laws, Star, Star Trek, Star Wars. Right. Uh, he's doing everything. This well, he's like the uber geek of movies yeah. and TV.
3: We're only early in. We're maybe into the fourth or fifth show. It, if I weren't doing other things, we would be watching this like skeletons in front of the TV to see how it, it goes. A, it will be a marathon. Yeah. And so the fact is, you know, the, the whole thing starts so it, – it is – beyond fantastic it's so good and it starts with you know there's a blackout and it never comes back and then basically it flips to 15 years in the future uh how uh, the world handled losing electricity in one stroke and i'm surprised that this is not a big topic of conversation uh in general but the it would seem like what you know somebody did it basically and that's the mystery the kind of the lost part probably there's a secret group that did it and they still have uh, a network. It,
1: right. It turned you know, it L- off. Lost actually lost me after the second season. I stopped watching. Yeah, me I, too. Yeah,
2: yeah. I, I just... Because got it, it, got, it, got too, rem- it got too convoluted. Right. I mean, yeah, it completely. Too, you know? Yep. I mean, it was well, just now, too do much. Do
3: you guys remember how long were the two seasons? Were they like 20 episodes each?
1: 22, lost? I believe. Yeah, 22 or 23 this or is, something This like
3: is the same. Right. So this is it. The first two seasons, there's about... F- 22 episodes each. So there's about 44 episodes here. And, you know, it's, it's holding a lot together. And I wonder if, in fact, they've solved that problem, you know. But as I was just, as you guys were just talking about the mach- it's already happened, the machines, you know, you realize we'd have to turn it off. But, but, but this sh- uh, revolution show does not account for solar whatsoever. or yeah, That
2: surprised me. Or, right. It- or hydro. Right. Or yeah. hydro.
3: Right. Or wind. Right. Right. That, and that surprised me a lot. So far, so far. And it also doesn't account, you know, everybody's treasuring the last little bit of liquor that they've been able to save, but they don't show people just sitting around, just smoking marijuana, like, whoa. They don't show, they've never had a reference to it. Right. Which and is the other interesting. thing
2: is, is, of course, they're using a train, so they're using steam engines. So right. my problem is, if the steam engine works in a train, mm-hmm then why can't a steam engine work? I mean, they've got wood... Why doesn't well, a steam engine work to generate power, to have local power grids, to have direct power well, according grids, to the, the way plot, Edison built them? Uh, according, to the, yeah. according
3: to the plot, the bad guys have only managed just now to get one steam engine working. So it's like they're the newest. That's why they you suddenly hear the steam whistle blow. Right. Uh, everybody else has been living in a weird kind of combination of whole earth. Like you're at the farmer's market in the middle of 14th Street in New York City, and everybody's wearing those long, flowy dresses and stuff, and there's that. That, coupled with steampunk you know so that you can go back to that era i mean the, the the sets and the it's it's beyond fabulous looking so yeah you better set set aside some time mr angel because i
2: think yeah you but then remember, but then remember i'll put I it on my bucket j- list yeah. I I think that J.J. J. Abrams did a really bad job on Star Trek Into Darkness because he was playing with – first of all, he screwed the home timeline up for <laughs> Star Trek.
1: Well, not really because this is an alternate timeline. It yeah. deviates from Spock the original timeline completely.
2: Sp- Spock comes back from the future. To talk, well,
1: I mean, that... into a, yeah, but into an alternate reality. Think about it this way. Think about Back to the Future when they're going back into 1955, and then they get right. back to 1995, and right. it's not their reality. It's an alternate right. reality. Right. Same concept. So in this new reality, everything that you thought was you know, the way it was is not exactly the same. For example, Kirk doesn't have the blue eyes from the old uh, show. He has brown eyes now. There's certain characteristic changes in the characters. Uh, they weren't there before. Some traits are going to be different. He could have
3: taken LuTess. For uh, for uh, for eye problems as he aged because it turns blue eyes brown it literally does. No, but he was, he,
1: he's always had in blue. when he was young, Kirk, he always had him
2: blue. Right. No, but, that's what I'm okay. saying. But now they're but brown, did, right? No, but he still kept to the timeline of Carol Marcus because remember, Kirk marries Carol. Ultimately, Kirk has a child with Carol Marcus, and that's the not son. Not necessarily in this
1: tar- not necessarily in this timeline, though. We never know. See, things are going to be altered completely in this timeline. With Vulcan uh, home planet dead, you know, blown away, uh, certain things that happen are and, just going to be different. And why can't
3: I talk about my my Bella Haven, which is more real than this?
2: Because, this is because Star, Star Trek, Trek is yeah, not competing is with Trek. the Dark Matter Digital Network. <laughs> exactly. Huh. I keep and forgetting that. Because
3: here's why. Here's why. Uh, I don't oh feel. I don't feel as though I'm competing. I truly, in my heart, feel as though I'm helping. And you'll well, see that's why. Because you're looking
2: at the future.
3: Exactly. Right. Not this the is presence. Future Theater. Right.
1: Yeah, but right. you're talking about Bill Haven on Future Theater. See, that's kind no, of No, not. No not. I
3: didn't say a word. Let's you go just... back to
1: Star Trek for a second because I really like this yep. conversation, where it was going. Uh the the JJ Abrams universe that he created with this alternate timeline, it's probably not going to be set in stone forever. Uh what's going to probably end up happening is somehow some way in the near future and probably another two or three sequels, they're going to somehow fix the timeline issues. You'll probably give Vulcan back. You know, there's certain things they'll probably end up doing to go back to the original timeline because the fans really want that timeline. Well, they or really would... want
2: that timeline. Are you, uh, you're right. I mean, I, yeah. I have to... Yeah, it's true. Not only I that, mean... not
1: only that it, there's a good chance we're going to get the original timeline on TV and future TV shows, but the movies might continue on for a little while in this current alternate timeline. So everything you see on this alternate universe
2: is an alternate reality to the
1: original Star Trek. Yeah, well, when they Ethan hired... Ethan
2: Phillips... Yeah. Ethan Phillips, who, ha- who was Neelix on Star Trek Voyager, he mm-hmm. and I had to pitch stories to, the Star- to, uh, to Berman and the Star Trek um, really? production team. Oh, yeah, when we were doing the Star Trek cookbook. And so we would go in to pitch stories uh, at Paramount. And <clears throat> I have to tell you, they were so religious about that timeline. I mean, there, there is a Bible for Star Trek that yeah. is actually bigger than the Bible. They were so religious. I've got to tell you, they were so religious, and they had this list of when you could do time travel stories and when you could do uh, stories that were lighthearted like dealing with Bobby Picardo, who was the computer doctor, things like that. There were all these timeline stories. And I'm telling you, you deviated once, and there were script supervisors sitting in the room when you were pitching. And if you said the wrong thing, it was like um, Major Bose Amateur Hour.
3: You're off the set. I'm trying to cough. Um, Why did we end up with the humongous and beautiful big Star Trek Encyclopedia in galley form.
2: Why were we given that? Do you remember? Because Margaret Clark, who was the Star Trek editor at Gallery Book Simon & Schuster, she was the Star Trek editor. She said, if you're going to do anything in Star Trek, anything, this is the Bible for Star Trek publishing. And she gave me the Bible and said, whatever Ah. you want to do. And then uh, the only other person that I work with. Oh, the two people really were, were Mike Westmore, who did the makeup for Star Trek, and and um, Alan Sims, who we had that horrendous trip to Malibu. <laughs> Not yeah, Malibu, but to, but to, me, Mal to,
3: meet, to meet to meet
2: to meet Ming Chang.
3: Wa Ming Chang, the fellow who
2: original the original prop developer for Star Trek: The Original Series
3: and nice. time ma- and time machine. He invented George, that time that time machine, that George little
2: George Pal's time machine. Right, George he Powell? built that.
3: Yeah, about yeah. that time machine, and when the time machine is supposedly going through lava and fire at one scene, you know, the little it looks like an ornate carriage, like a Victorian right, carriage, right. right? Well, when it's going into the lava and stuff, with that, what that the way they did it was it was a room full of oatmeal that they tinted red right. and. It, they filled the entire room ruining they, my
1: childhood one story at a well, time well it
3: gets tonight. it gets way worse and <laughs> oh so yeah yeah you it have gets no way idea worse. the scene took a few days to shoot so they just closed up the set and came back and the next day oh. it was starting to rot yeah. oh. and then the following <laughs> so that's how that scene was done right yeah and, and in then, fact um what's this uh um, Wa- waming chow is the guy who invented the flip phone basically it was a mistake right.
2: yes yes He couldn't get, that was, that's one of the great stories. So here is the whole, a whole generation of cell phones that are flip phones that are based on the original Star Trek communicator. And so (laughs) Wang Ming Chang says, I tried to get it to do something else and the stupid thing wouldn't work. So Kirk had to flip the phone open to get it to work. He tried to get a button to push it. So it popped open and it wouldn't do it. And that's how we got the flip phone. I mean, (laughs) Wang Ming Chang was a really funny guy. Well, he was a genius for sure. Yeah, genius. A, a genius,
3: yeah, yeah. And he worked well into his middle to late eighties. He eventually, yeah. when we when we met him, he had a walker, but his walker was completely outfitted with equipment and stuff. And he would go from project to project. And his latest project, he was an artist, a sculptor.
2: Yeah, yeah, he was, was
3: learning how to sculpt with a brand new scanning machine or zero, mm-hmm. you know, personal personal Xerox machine scanning machine. He would layer things way way up to see what kind of depths and things he would get. And he would just be making art all day long. He was a great,
2: great man to talk to. Wa and Ming he, Chang. Chang. Wa Ming Chang. And he gave us all these great secrets. For example, the character Gorn. Remember Gorn? Um, right. Where Kirk had to fight with Gorn uh, on the planet of the Metrons. We are the Metrons. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to fight with him. Well, that was a diving costume. That was from the old... You know, bell-headed diving mm. suits. And so, um, uh, Awa a built that from a diving suit. And that was how Gorn got created. And, and, and to this day, to this day, well, he's dead now. But one of the things he said was that this whole business of the large gray-headed alien, it was Wa Ming Chang who created that alien for Outer Limits. That was his mm. alien. And right. that alien be- was the basis for Baylock which was, I think, episode two or three in the original series in the first season. Well,
3: so he's continu- a very important con- guy. Right, right. And continuing that thread, uh, in a week or two, let's just check for sure, we're going to be having Philippe Morrow on. Right? Ah, yes. And and continuing that so, Okay, so Philippe is going to be on two weeks from tonight, August 10th. Continuing right. that story of the big-headed alien, Philippe was very influenced when he created the alien head that ended up in Communion, which is at this point in time as seminal, to use a boyfriend oh, yes, word, as yeah, yes. seminal and, uh, an image as possible. So we'll have to revisit this. Um, oh,
2: we're going to have a ball with Philippe because we want to talk mm-hmm. about... What I mean, yes, Whitley described those aliens, but remember, when Betty and Barney Hill, when uh, Benjamin Simon, the psychiatrist Benjamin Simon, was doing therapy with Betty and Barney Hill on their lost memories, since Benjamin Simon, we should get Kathy Martin on again, since Benjamin uh, Simon never believed that Betty and Barney had been abducted he never believed it what he believed was that they believed that they were abducted but but Benjamin Simon couldn't grok the fact that there were extraterrestrials that took Betty and Barney that night and so his rationale was that they had seen a kind of an outer limits television show which they really couldn't have seen because outer limits wasn't on in 1961, but that's what he believed. Mm-hmm. And that that was a dream that Barney had. And it was kind of a folie dieu where he had influenced Betty. And that was how that image of the large headed greys got in. That's that right. was one of the. Yeah, that's what he said.
3: That's right. Yeah, I was now, tweeting out. I'm just tweeting out some tweets right now. I'm not looking at the chat. Uh, if you guys want to chat, uh, well, you all know actually, where to go. And, and and we're ready. We're at the bottom of ready. our hour. Yeah, so we we're are. ready. And the, uh, the hour. I
1: so, our, yeah, we
2: Yeah, we're going to take our break. break. We're going to take our right. break right now. So, folks, everybody, stay tuned for these messages. We are Bill and Nancy Burns on Future Theater, live on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio. Back with our guest, Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, after... James Swagger, host of Capricorn Radio. I'm
0: also an author, engineer, and researcher. Capricorn Radio covers alternative history, alternative science, philosophy, and truth, orientated discussions. We are proud to be on the Dark Matter Radio Network, live at 8 p.m. Saturdays, Eastern Standard Time. You can catch extra info on
2: darkmatterradio.net, jamesswagger.com for yours truly.
0: CapricornMembers.com for the archives. Don't forget, truth is not democratic. Truth is truth.
4: UFO phenomenon, either we like it or not, is already very much part of our reality.
2: I've been on panels with uh, military people who, you know, claim that they've seen the aliens buzzing our missile silos. They have very large eyes, and, you know, I found their stare extremely difficult to
0: bear. This is Martin Willis, the host of Podcast UFO, and we are here on the Dark Matter Radio Network every Wednesday from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It is my commitment to bring you an entertaining weekly show that takes a hard look at the UFO phenomena. Are they extraterrestrial? Or are they interdimensional? Are they time travelers or something we have not even thought of yet? We explore these questions with interesting guests and witnesses from all around the globe. In addition, we bring you weekly UFO news with Open Minds TV, Alejandro Rojas. Thank you for listening, and remember, keep your eyes to the sky. Hello, my name is Howard Hughes, and I'm in London, and I've been proud to bear this name all my life. Over here in the UK, I'm known as a broadcast journalist. I've been involved in some of the big stories of our time. The fall of the Berlin Wall, the death of Princess Diana, I told London about that. And on the first and second anniversaries of 9-11, I was there at Ground Zero, speaking to the people who were directly involved in those experiences I will never forget. So news is my thing. But my great love is my show, the one that I produce, The Unexplained. Over the years on this show, I've spoken to people like the late Al Bierlich from the Philadelphia Experiment, Edgar Mitchell, the amazing Apollo astronaut, Dr. Stephen Greer, David Ike, and Uri Geller. People like Richard C. Hoagland have become personal friends over the years. I met him in London. So you can see that these sort of topics are what I like to discuss. Please join me on my show from London. The Unexplained, Monday nights on the Dark Matter Network.
2: Yes, And we're back on Future Theatre Live with your co-host, Bill. That's me and Nancy Burns. And our guest, Mr. UFO, Tim Beckley. Thank you for joining us, Tim. And we are going to talk tonight a little bit or a lot, I hope, about the history of UFO publishing because you yourself are part of that history.
4: Well, you know, it really kind of makes me feel uh, old because, you know, UFO publishing goes back way, way, way back to the beginning. I wasn't there uh, during the first generation, but uh, I came along in the – just before the mid-1960s. Anyway, I want to mention to the listeners uh, out there that – uh, if possible they should go to a, a, a website while well, they listen to us called ufopop.org now this site is a wonderful uh, tour of ufo uh, history uh, you want to click on the magazine sections and uh, magazine section and look at all these great uh, covers from the history of ufos now bill if you have that in front of you the first one that they actually list is from like nineteen, I think it's uh, eleven or something like this. These, the, this was Modern Ele- Electrics magazine. Some yes, of the covers, I remember yeah. that cover.
3: Oh. I love those. I love those. I use well, those a lot. All right, they're, you know. Yeah, they're copyright free for if you if you've got to yeah, yeah, do Yeah, graphics. but you know
4: these things are identical to the UFOs that we would have used on the covers of our our uh, magazine. I mean, they're UFOs. Where did they come from in, in 1901 and 1911 right, and right, 1919? Right. And most people are totally unaware of this. In fact, before I found the, uh, this particular site, I was not aware that uh, these particular covers existed uh, either. Of course, we had, uh, you know, back in the 20s and the 30s, all the science fiction covers, right? The, oh, right. The Amazing Stories and, um, oh, I don't know, uh, uh, Analog uh, Magazine. And their covers were of floating space cities, of, of a craft that looks like flying saucers, disc-shaped right. uh, objects. Before Kenneth Arnold's sighting, twenty years before, twenty-five years before. So, UFOs True. on the uh, UFO depictions in magazines have been with us for a heck of a long time, more than we actually uh, uh, realize. Mm-hmm. Now, I break up okay UFO publishing into two categories. We have the UFO zines, which were, uh, uh, I guess they aren't anymore, but uh, uh, UFO zines, which were mimeographed, dittoed. Uh, One of the first was a publication called Flying Source Review, not to be confused with the one out of England. And this was done on, I believe it was called a thermal machine. Um, it, It was even... I I guess not even as professional as the Ditto machine. That way, you probably all remember from school where all the ink was purple. This was printed. Okay, well, this was printed on thermal paper. That's about the best way that I can uh, describe it. And it disappeared maybe after. um, Right. Oh, I guess maybe six months or so. It turned yellow, is what it would do. Right. Uh, well I wouldn't even say that it just disappeared. It was yeah. remember when you were a kid you had these uh little cameras and you could expose it to the light and you would get a little picture on a on a not even on a negative but on a piece of paper. Right, exactly. Okay, okay, well that's that's what this was. Now, the the publication that I I remember being published in that method cuz I had one or two of them was the Flying Saucer Review uh that came out I think in around 1953. It was published and edited by a fellow in New York uh, State here by the name of Elliot Rockmore. And it it, it consisted basically of a lot of the early uh, uh, sightings that he collected and uh, printed on this publication. Now, I don't know how many subscribers he had, but I wouldn't guess that he had more than maybe uh, 75 or 100 uh, Mm. at the most. The publication did uh, uh, carry on for quite a number of years. In fact, uh, uh, the uh, UFO pop, if you type in flying saucer review you'll see that uh, uh, it goes back to at least 1953 1954 that was one of the earliest ufo scenes but maybe not the first the um, i, I there, there were a couple of publications maybe before that or around the same time it's kind of hard to pinpoint well, one was not, yeah
3: the flying saucer review didn't it continue on into normal printing because different,
4: different publisher the, the flying saucer review that you're thinking about was a very prestigious very glossy magazine okay. that was published for decades out of the u uh, k and it okay. had an assortment it had an assortment of editors uh, Brinsley lapore trench and uh Oh, geez, I can't even remember all the names. Uh, Gordon Crichton.
3: Nice, uh, nice. Yeah, yeah
4: okay. Yeah, and and yeah. that that may even still be going. I know that they have a website, but I haven't seen the magazine mm-hmm. uh, in, in ages. Now, that was the one that everybody contributed to. It had a global a readership, and the um, different, uh, different representatives around the world would send in foreign clippings, and they would actually go to the uh, extent to have them translated. And it was one of the few magazines that saw this. On a, on a global uh, basis, and they um, catered a lot to uh, humanoid and creature reports. In fact, I think back in the 1970s, they did a, um, a special called The Flying Saucer Review Humanoid uh, Issue.
3: Yeah, so nice.
4: That, that so that, to me, that was a, one, a, between, a cross between the hybrid, how about that, a cross between a zine publishing and a professional magazine. I consider professional magazines would be publications that were primarily sold on newsstands. Right,
3: right, and, okay. And,
4: and the first one of that would have been, of course, Fate magazine, even though it wasn't entirely a UFO. That appeared, I think, in the spring of 1948. 40,
3: no, I think they, I think they claimed 47.
4: Really, uh, well, as their, it, as their first one, yeah, I think okay. so because yeah.
3: uh, it, you know, it coincides. With everything. But it's, uh,
4: of course, Kenneth Arnold. Uh, no,
3: but you're right. You're probably yeah. right. Yeah. That's the sort of thing I would have double-checked back when you wrote for me on UFO <laughs> Magazine. I would have double-checked it. Right. And, and, and whenever I double-checked you, you, in fact, were, in fact, correct. So
4: I would say, yeah, 48th well, time. It, it it, I cannot remember where I put my uh, house keys, right? But I can right. remember <laughs> right. who the editor of some totally obscure publication was in 1951. Okay. Of course, all right. Well, now, okay, Fate Magazine, like I say, was 1947, 1948. Then you had True Magazine, which was, oh. to- not, it was not a total UFO publication, of course, but I kind of lump it in that category because later on, they did have UFO specials in the 1970s. Right, right, right. Okay, True Magazine was what we would call a men's magazine. Not to be confused with uh, Playboy or Penthouse or High Society, it was an action magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, which uh, meant that there were still stories about um, World War II and how to clean your Daisy rifle and and things along uh, that line. In 1949, that last can... part doesn't sound very manly, but I'll just <laughs> well, who knows? Who knows? Okay, um, they used to sell them in the back of the magazines, right? They did. You I, buy, I remember could... those. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, really
2: could... wanted. I really wanted a Daisy rifle. You betcha, yeah. Red Rider, And I'll tell you. I couldn't get one because one of the problems was we lived in New York City. Yeah. And you shoot a BB in New York City and it's going to hit somebody in the (laughs) eye. So.
4: Yeah, yeah, you (laughs) bet, you bet. But they had all kinds of dart guns and everything you could imagine Um, knives, uh, holsters for your gun, even if you didn't have one. Uh, Anyway, the first article on UFOs and this might have been the first one in a national magazine was December of 1949 Major Donald D e. Kehoe wrote Flying Saucers Are Real and yes. the cat, and the cat was out of the bag
0: mm-hmm. and
4: uh, uh, there were I, I guess he wrote for the magazine on on a regular uh, basis because the articles were so immensely uh, uh, popular then years years later like I say uh, the title came out of retirement. Someone had bought the uh, the title True and had put out a True UFO magazine. And that was about 1965 to 1967. In mm-hmm. fact, I knew the publisher. His name was Adrian Lopez. Adrian mm-hmm. put out probably about 75 uh, different magazines of all different genres. Uh, some of the most popular were actually about cars. Uh, you know, okay. car collecting and things. And, and was
3: he work? Was he working out of, out of Los Angeles or New York? No,
4: no, no. He was. He was working out of, I think it was Twenty Seventh Street, nice. and he uh, did a, a a bunch of surly men's magazines. But he huh. t- didn't. He didn't publish them out of that office. He opened a one room office, uh, in, in you know, a couple of blocks uh, away, just so advertisers, more than anybody else, wouldn't confuse his. Um, Regular magazines with the the more mm. jaded ones, but mm. here here's a little interesting uh, ta-ta about this. I used to try to go up and get paid because I was contributing to <laughs> to all to all all sides of the fence. Mm. And and as you know, if you're in right? the magazine um, and business as a freelance writer, you're probably the last ever to to see uh, you know a dollar. And I would have to go up there to to try to find his office. Well, now. I guess towards the end, even though he had been very successful, he had to rent out part of his office, uh, and you had to go through a labyrinth of hallways and all in order to find out where his bookkeeping department was. And of course, they didn't—they sp- pretended not to speak English. Anyway, in order to reach the bookkeeping he- <laughs> department, he had rented out the office space to the American Communist Party. Wow. And, and, wow. uh I mean, there's a, there's a total unknown uh, unknown fact about it, but uh, for years, uh, true UFO was uh, resurrected, and uh, I guess it did very well. There was a period of time, a uh, 1965 to 1967, uh, you know, the the Anover Flap uh, in yes. Michigan, right? The, right. Mar- the so-called Marsh Gas, where you could do no wrong. As far mm-hmm. as publishing a UFO magazine, we were a few years too late, Bill, I'm afraid.
3: Well, <laughs> Tim, Tim, yeah. you were – during that whole era, you were yes. basically freelancing for more than
4: one – whoever would take you, you yeah. would freelance for, oh, okay. right? Okay. Well, no, actually, see, now, in 1964, mm-hmm. I went out and I bought a little mimeograph machine. Nice. I became a zine publisher. Nice. I, I, love, that. Out, I love that. I yeah. put out the Interplanetary News Service Report. In fact, on ufopop.org, if you type that in, you will find two or three uh, uh, covers from the uh, these little newsletters that I did. Well, they weren't actually little. They started out as being 10 pages with roughly a circulation of maybe 75 to 100. By mm-hmm. time, I sort of... Gave up on it and gave it to Jim Mosley to take over. It had a circulation of about fifteen hundred, and it was forty pages. Well, in those days, Nancy and Bill and Angel, you had to collate and staple all that stuff by yourself. Well, was it called Saucer Smear when you were doing it? No, no, oh no, no, no. It was uh, Saucer News was started in about nineteen fifty-three by Jim Mosley, who had just left Princeton. He didn't graduate, (laughs) but he left. He left yeah. Princeton, and he started Nexus, and you can find that on that website as well, quite a few <laughs> covers. It was rather crude, to say the least. I don't want to insult anybody, but the artwork was some of the worst I've ever seen, uh, but I suspect… And believe probably- me, you have, se- you have seen bad. You've seen the worst. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I, I, I have seen the worst, and I have also seen the best, mm. uh, to Tell you to tell you the truth. Uh, anyways, uh, Nexus ran from 1953 for probably four or five years, and then Jim changed the title to Saucer News. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, like most of us, I think in the early days, Jim believed that uh, UFOs were the product of extraterrestrials. But as he went on uh, in the um, uh, into the publishing a little bit more deeply, uh, he changed his tune. He had... Uh, made friends with a fellow by uh, the name of Leon Davidson, who had some CIA connections. And Davidson said that most of the UFO sightings, observations and even like the Georgia Damsky uh, supposed contact in the desert were really uh, implemented by the Central Intelligence uh, Agency. Now, I don't know why he believed this. There wasn't too much uh, evidence uh, for that. But, but, di- he but al- didn't
3: he also say that they were they recruited him and he considered
4: it? No, oh no, no. Uh, for some for some reason, uh, people thought that uh, Jim might have been a uh, a member of the uh, Silence Group. But I knew Jim personally. I mean, really, really personally. You know, I mean, even outside of the office, he was never with any military group in his life. He was 4F. I mean uh literally uh his father however was a neo nazi uh general in the you know in the American uh, the army nazi
2: party yeah Oh yeah, right, yeah. Neo-
4: but he he was he was a, a four star a, a general and Jim really despised him and you know never t- talked to him for most of his uh his uh,
3: but wait, life. he was uh, he was a, f- a four-star general in a pretend military or no, the U, no. the
4: US, US uh, uh, U S Army or military, whatever, whatever he was in, mm-hmm. and he was cited for being a neo-Nazi. I he might wow. have even ended up in, in jail. Uh, this would have been what uh, during uh, the start of the war or uh, around that early forties when, yeah. when there were 30s, when there were Nazi, 40s. quite a few, yeah, uh, quite a few Nazi. Well,
3: so at, but, the, at You know, not at the end of his life, but when we came into yeah. his life, we came in <coughs> through the Eckers, and yeah. they, had had, they had had a to-do. And every time from the time I knew Jim, um, he would always write UFO Magazine and then in parens, UGH. Uh, he always put that mm-hmm. as yes, part yeah. of, as, like, trademark or something. Until I sent a, him money. Yeah, I began yeah. to send him money, and he stopped. Yeah.
4: <laughs> Jim was a character. You either loved him or you despised him. There's no um, you know, uh, uh, two ways uh, around it. Now, in fact, when he passed away, we, uh, we published a book of um, uh, articles, some from Saucer News, some that he had uh, written, uh, and comments and, and articles by some of his uh, friends. I don't think we had too much. By that time, people didn't really have too much uh, mm-hmm. uh, negative to say. But he was considered to be the court jester, Mm-hmm. of uh ufology and actually he did he did do it you know he kept everybody on their toes there's mm-hmm. no, there's no doubt about it because as you guys know it's kind of easy to get carried away in this field you can mm-hmm. ha- you can have roswell it. you can have roswell slides you can have uh any number of um uh topics twelve okay, b- before uh, we get 12, to
3: before yep. we get too far away, I yep. want to go back to when you were first starting out and you got to know the guys who yep. were uh, introducing the topic to the United States, to this part of the world. Yes. Do you think in your heart of hearts that uh, that there had been any government infiltration at that point and that all of you guys were stooges sort of set up to put this in? Like particularly the guy, you know, didn't want to pay you. Yep. Um, Lo- oh,
4: no. He was just a sleazy publisher. <laughs> 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 oh. Oh no, he had no no military uh, uh, ties. No, no, the, but
3: wouldn't that be an easy way for say somebody to give him a yeah. couple hundred bucks a month to just kind yeah. of sort out the? Uh, you he know.
4: could just he would just put out another girly magazine to make a couple of bucks. Now mm. uh, these guys these guys were uh, were not in the uh, the pay of the government whatsoever. In fact, there was no reason to because none of us had a very large circulation. Now, Sorcery News at one point tipped the scale at about uh, ten to twelve thousand copies. Now that that's pretty well uh, and, and that wasn't yeah, but that's look good. how it's and that was seen. mainly that was mainly subscriptions because as you know Bill in order to sell ten or twelve thousand copies on the news there, what do you gotta print? Thirty five thousand? Exactly, because they all oh, come
2: back anyway. And they come they don't even come back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well a
4: page yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Who know who knows where they uh, they go.
2: Now, I'll, yeah, tell so even, they,
4: I'll tell you where yeah, they go. Where they go, they go to flea, flea markets. I, I, they do. <laughs> I found out the hard way. We would yeah.
2: we would print 20,000 copies. Yeah. I would get these reports back. Oh, you only sold eight, 9,000 yeah. copies. And then I'd go to a flea market and see UFO yeah, magazines yeah, sitting there.
4: Well, you know, I, see, I distributed my own uh, publication. I had the world's only flying saucer newspaper. It was... The UFO review. It lasted for maybe about three or four years, but I had about seventy wholesalers around the country who would take anywhere from a hundred to twenty five hundred copies, right? And and it sold enough, I don't know, like, you know, thirty-five percent to keep the ball rolling. But what paperwork? right what paperwork right. and when mm. you talk, they talk about affidavit re- returns oh, there's God, there's, no, I hate there's those. no there's no affidavit did you ever see an mm. affidavit it's like they they scrawl something on the back of a napkin over lunch while they were having a good laugh and send it mm. to you in the mail saying right. that they today they destroyed you know like 500 copies of your um, uh, you know your your publication right. I, I remember right. there was a guy in cleveland who took $2500 2, the 2500 copies yes <laughs> uh, yeah. of the uh, of the uh, the UFO review right and and that that, that seemed like a big draw uh, for uh, you know uh, cleveland but we weren't selling very many copies maybe 5 or 600 so one day i happened to get the guy on the the phone and i said you know you're taking all these uh, copies what do you do with them and he said you know what he said he says, frankly, what we do with them, we we use them around the outside of the bales of the uh, of the magazines, so that the wires don't cut into something that'll sell. Like in other wow. words, they would wrap they would wrap wow. t- TV Guide, Reader's Digest, Cosmopolitan, uh-huh. and Playboy, uh-huh. and use use ours as the fodder for, uh-huh. our, for all. The- yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. That's <laughs> And then heaven, heaven forbid if they ever ask you to buy your own racks, right? Yes. Because unless oh, you're there. Oh, yeah, the
2: pocket programs. I hated yeah, yeah. the
4: pocket programs. yeah Because and, and unless, unless you're there to make sure that nobody else has taken over your, uh, your racks, you're going to find everybody else's publication in the 40 racks that you paid $30 mm-hmm. a piece from, probably from the wholesaler, right, whose father is manufacturing You're going to find somebody else's publication in, in there and not yours.
2: Right. Right. Exactly. And then and and then the distributors would beat you up because you wouldn't pay the extra five thousand yeah, dollars to get into one yeah. of their pocket programs. Yeah. And they'd be screaming at you, how can we distribute your magazine and build your readership? And so I'd have yeah. to say to them, My readership is 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 solid. I know exactly who yeah. my readership is. I know exactly where it sells. You know, don't tell me you're going to take me out to some high-end, yuppie place where they're going to look at the magazine, one or two magazines on a rack, burst out laughing, and keep on walking.
4: Well, you know, they have the wholesalers, of course. Now, what they do is the magazines come in, uh, go to the dealers usually on Tuesday and Friday. So the uh, wholesalers bundle up all the new magazines that have come out. Uh, in uh, to their warehouse and, and send them out to the dealers. Well, the dealers open the bundles and they put out the magazines that they know they're going to sell a couple of copies of. That would be the Playboy, the um, oh, Cosmopolitan, uh, maybe Vogue, uh, things that they can get a few bucks uh, for and they know if they put four or five copies in the rack, probably they're not going to have to send any back. Well, the the whole the wholesalers would find some place. That would take, you know, like uh, 35 copies of the UFO review and uh, uh, throw them, uh, you know, somewhere and, and just to get rid of them so they didn't have to spread them out. I remember Steam Shovel Press. There used to be a place on 6th Avenue in Manhattan here where they would take 50 copies of Ken Thomas's publication and, and stack them in a pile. And he probably sold three. If That, they was, had- on, that was on 12th Street. That was on That's 12th right. Street in Greenwich Village. Yeah, yeah. Good right news. Right at the corner. I love that place. Uh, I love yeah, that you yeah, you could always get steam shovel press there, right? Well, you know, uh, our friend Olaf uh, Phillips just bought steam shovel press. Oh, I really? John yeah, yes.
2: yeah, in, in, yeah. And in, he's... In, in
4: fact, in fact, Olaf and I are working on a publication called Retro UFO, Nice. And right. it's going to Good for it's him. going Good to contain yeah, it's going to contain a lot of the articles that I published in the UFO Review, nice. Nice. and it's a whole different generation, and some of this stuff was fabulous material. Absolutely. Right, and in isn't fact, it
3: nice that that Olaf appreciates this enough yes. and sees the value in it? Yeah,
4: absolutely. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yes, uh, in fact, he has his, I think, uh, mysterious uh, magazine that he's just uh, uh, started as well, and and, and, a, and a couple of others. Uh, you right. Know, so. Exactly. So, are you guys? So, are are you going to do? So, are you going to print hard copies? Well, they will be available as hard copies. Um, again, um, print, I, print I don't, on
3: the. Print-on-demand,
4: maybe. Yeah, you know, maybe a limited run here or there. I don't think uh, either one of us uh, could uh, go the uh, Barnes & Noble route. Well, look at Open Mind, which certainly was uh, uh, about as glossy as you could possibly – He lost –
2: he told me that – this is Johnny Rayo. He told me he lost so much money on Open Minds magazine, I'd see him – and he'd call me yeah. and he'd say, are you, are you making any money on this? And I'd say, on printing? Well, yeah, I, I have a nice subscription base, yeah. but it yeah. was during the run of UFO Hunters. That's and then right. he'd say, I am getting, I am getting killed on yeah. Open Minds. And he told me in advance, I'm, I'm going to stop the magazine. I, I just yeah. can't afford the hemorrhage.
4: Yeah. Well, you know, okay. Now, in my, in, in my way of thinking what he did wrong, UFO readers do not necessarily want gloss. He's publishing the same UFO photographs of Billy Meyer and all that we've seen from Wendell Stevens' collection that we've seen for a long, long time. People want content, and and that uh, with UFO Universe that I did and UFO uh, magazine that you did, we gave them original content and as up to date as we possibly could. People right, don't want right. to, people don't right. want to read uh, you know articles. Over and over again on Roswell and Socorro they want they want the most recent uh, things, or I- unless you could find something that's really uh, you know uh, n- a newsworthy that uh, hasn't been said about a particular topic, which is not the easiest thing in the world to uh, to do. Right, and if I talked t-
3: and. Well, I just want to say I took the approach, and I still take the approach, even as we enter the future, because we're doing a new thing called Hyperzine, and that's basically a trademarked name now. Uh, I'm going to recreate the magazine experience Mm -hmm. for the computer that is not a facsimile of pages turning, stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. Why would you pretend? Why don't we just pretend it's a scroll instead? It's crazy. But so we're doing we're doing the hyperzine, uh situation. I just wanted to insert that.
4: Well, yeah. well, there are there are a couple of publications that are, as far as I know, guys. There's only one English, uh, one magazine in, in the English language that's totally devoted to UFOs. Now, I'm not talking about fourteen times because that's kind of like Fate magazine a little bit everything. Mm-hmm. Right, and right. that one publication is the Australian Ufologist. Mm-hmm. As as far as I know, that is the only English speaking uh, magazine uh, totally devoted to the uh, uh, to flying saucers.
2: Hmm. There was there was a Midwest UFO uh, of, a few years ago. I mean, if if I told you, the fights we had yes. over doing glossy pages, um, full color. I mean the. Just the bitter fights, and, and you know, yeah. I was saying to the original person who yes. bought the magazine from Vicky and Don, basically saying, "Why are you doing yes, eighty-six pages, for color on uh, this glossy print? It's insane! It's well, just insane." Well, the distribu-
4: the national distributor, will tell you that you need that, but on the other, uh, but on the other hand, they don't care. It's no sweat off their back, <laughs> right? Yeah. I
2: mean, I mean yeah. Ingram didn't bug us to, uh, to tell us that we needed uh, no. all four color, and then when we went to um, a color, written a half color, half black and yeah. white yeah. on newsprint, and the newsprint held the color. Yes, yeah. so we saved a lot of money on that.
4: Well, exactly, and uh, the only there's a, there's a publication you're probably familiar with called Atlantis Rising. Now, yes, they of actually, course, I know okay, the Okay, well, yeah. okay, yeah. Well, they sell a reasonable amount of uh, uh, of it. Uh, uh, Magazines. I think their press run is fourteen or fifteen thousand copies, and it looks it it looks uh, very uh, nice. I mean, they do uh, run color in there, but th- the paper is not uh, you know it's not glossy and it's not necessary. It bulks up uh, very well. Mm. Now, Ray Palmer. Okay, uh, like I say, the UFO Review, the paper that I did, we managed to get out thirty thousand copies, which is very respectable. But actually, one of the more successful publishers, if he had ever put his magazine out on time, would have been Ray Palmer. Because he he was a a, a, a self publisher, you know he he originally started uh, Fate magazine with the uh, Curtis right. uh, Fuller right. under the name of uh, Norman Webster, I think it was, you know, uh, he did that because he was still working for Ziff Davis out of Chicago, and he didn't uh, you know uh, want to quite give up his uh, his regular day job at that uh, point, so uh, you know he did it uh, under this assumed anonymous uh, name for a while, and of course Fate magazine now. In in the beginning, or at least until the the mid nineteen seventies or so, had a circulation of over a hundred thousand. You know, they had thirty pages of classified ads. Can you imagine having thirty pages of cl- any kind of ads? Yes, I can. Now,
2: I can. I can. Okay. I can. Having done the classified ads yeah. for Asian women that you can basically yeah. mail order, I know yes. exactly the ads they had.
4: <laughs> yes. All right, but they had, they had, they even had their own advertising uh, director, a fellow by the name of Chet Geiger, who had started out uh, working, I think, in Amazing Stories as well, and then he went on to become uh, editor for a while of the Shaver Mystery uh, Magazine, and he worked for Fate Magazine uh, till the full, uh, I guess, the uh, Fullers. Uh, finally sold it out to uh, you know uh, Llewellyn, but they were they were doing very very uh, well at uh, one uh, point now I, as I hear it, what really killed them was the subscriptions, and hmm. you know why why that was because most of the scri- subscriptions were not um, what would you call it fully paid subscriptions they came in through the various clearing clearing houses and discount oh, houses where Okay, well, will you get what paid uh, eighty cents on the uh, on for every ten dollars mm-hmm. they collect or something like that? Mm-hmm. Well, right. that was all well and good when you got fifty pages of advertising in your magazine and postage is three cents a, a you know a copy to mail it out. But little by little, the postage soared, and and they had they had to maintain those by law, they had to maintain those subscriptions, uh, mm-hmm. even though you know the the cost uh, all around the board had uh, totally risen, and so that uh, didn't. Uh, Shine too uh, too well with the public, with the Curtis and Mary Fuller, because uh, that ate up whatever little cash reserve I think they would have had, you know.
2: Yeah, because uh, the whole um, analytics of this, the whole metrics of this is that your advertising must pay for the pages. So yeah. each page must be paid for by advertising, and then your subscriptions that determines your print run. So whatever you're going to shoot out to the newsstands, that's extra gravy, but it's your subscriptions that are the base of the run. So uh. if those two metrics don't work,
4: you're going to lose money. You know, I work for very few magazines that even took subscriptions because they they thought of it as, a, a, as something that would really tie them down. And if they wanted to cancel the magazine uh, it it would—they'd have to find somebody to take over the subscriptions, or they'd be in hot water. So they went solely on newsstand uh, sales, and, and some of them lasted for a while, either because the magazines themselves were selling. UFO magazines—if you print on pulp and you don't spend uh, too much money on your uh, uh, on your freelance uh, writers—you uh, can you can usually make a few thousand dollars a, a, an issue, and if you happen to be part of a uh, a publishing conglomerate and you got 30 or 40 different magazines uh you can do all right as uh, you know as long as you're using the same staff like official UFO magazine which was kind of a, a, a turned into a satire my my good friend Jeff Goodman who I I just had dinner with on my birthday there a couple of weeks ago he he uh, edited the official UFO and ancient uh, astronauts uh, magazine and they originally had started out as series of publications by like everybody else, but the publisher Myron Fass, who was a little on edge, decided that he wanted to do something more. Oh, I don't know what the word is. It, it just to make it, you know, more humorous, and 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 just basically turned it into a magazine like the Weekly World or News, with most all of the stories being total hoaxes. But they kept it, they kept it going for a long, long time because there were enough people out there. Uh, in America who thought that uh, some of these uh, stories like uh, UFOs uh, destroying the town of Chester and aliens under the Empire State Building uh, were legitimate. And And Richard
3: Richard Shaver,
4: Richard Shaver, the whole Shaver mystery. Well the the Shaver uh, mystery kept uh, Ray Palmer uh, going for many many years and you know it's still pretty popular actually the Shaver mystery. Uh, We have um, uh, a whole series of books, Uh, in fact it's called The Hidden World there were 16 of them published by Palmer, and uh, we keep 12 of them in uh, print. And, uh, you know, I mean, they're, they're not exactly running out the door, but people are interested in the Hollow Earth. In fact, this is something mm. very peculiar. When when I would start my book publishing company, you know, I figured that uh, everybody would want the books on, you know, uh, Flying Sources from Mars. So that was Cedric Allingham. Yeah. We still have that in print, too. But the main things that they were interested in were in books on the inner Earth and on uh, UFOs being German secret uh, aircraft, you know, the Nazi UFO theory. And and this was years before it was really taken uh, uh, seriously. Now, I I think that that's probably an explanation for a lot of the early UFO sightings uh, in, like, New Mexico and all, that the uh, government would rather have you believe, if you're going to believe in anything, that they're ETs uh, than have to confess that they might have been Uh, in some sort of collusion with these uh, German and Nazi uh, scientists and engineers that they brought in uh, here uh, as part of Project Paperclip. And if you remember, some of the early UFO contactees reported that the saucer pilots spoke with a uh, German accent. And uh, of uh, of course, even some of the Space Brothers look rather uh, aryan uh, in appearance, like Warthon, uh, for example. So, uh, that's my my take on all. Yeah, of this. Valiant.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, Valiant Thor looked like a movie star.
4: Yes, he did. Yes, he did. But you know, I believe the Valiant Thor story. Um, really? Yes. You know why I believe it? Okay. Well, I, I knew why? Frank Strange. Okay, I knew Frank Strange uh, fairly well. He always emceed yeah. our uh, UFO uh, conferences. Very likable gentleman, and of course, he was a a, a minister. I wouldn't exactly call him a fundamentalist uh, minister. Uh, but he was uh, not even hellfire and brimstone. He, I, I even spoke for his uh, church that he had in, uh, I think it was in Van Nuys. Yeah, it was uh, kind of a middle class uh, church, and it, it, he uh, spoke about UFOs, of course, and about Valiant Thor. Well, now somewhere along the line, I was, I uh, had my own. Uh, uh, public relations company. I had people like Peter Max as a client for a while, and and Les Paul, you know, the guitar wow, sure. player. Yeah, yeah. Well, they were not long lasting clients. There, there was a fellow by the name of Harold Sulkin who was my associate at the uh, the time, and he knew everybody from the um, the celebrity scene. That's how we met uh, Muhammad Ali and uh, all these other uh, people that are in my uh, Shirley MacLaine. Um, meets the palladium book that just came out a, a couple of months ago you know and uh uh so anyway we just you know we we knew all these people and uh they were having they were having ufo uh, sightings and uh something we knew something strange was going on but you really couldn't put your finger uh you know uh, on it and little by little i i guess just along with a lot of the other people that were in the field it just seemed that the extraterrestrial theory wasn't as um uh, compelling, didn't seem supportive, yeah, compelling or didn't compelling or didn't seem uh, as supportive as it was at uh, one time.
2: Well, so um, so so why do you think that um, Valiant Thor was a real?
4: Oh, oh, oh yeah, a okay, real yeah, I, I Yeah, I lost my train of thought there. Okay, okay. Um, one of the public relations, one of the clients that we had, we had a couple of born again ministers. We had little Lord Michael. This is our public relations client, not not my personal beliefs, though. We had little right. Lord Michael, who was the youngest evangelist in the country. I think he was seven years old or something like that. Then then we had Sister Lucy, who uh, dripped some kind of miracle oil from her fingertips. Now, you couldn't buy the miracle oil, but if you put $25 in an envelope and handed it to them and made a line at the service and handed it to them, and uh, they would give you the bottle for uh, uh, quote for free. Now I remember a couple of times they were uh, kind of furious behind the the, uh, the drawn curtain because they were opening the envelopes expecting to find stacks of cash and people were stuffing the envelopes with napkins. <laughs> <laughs> how how religious can you be, right? Okay, so brother uh, brother Frank Stranges. Uh, his his brother was uh, David Stragus. Now, he had come from a family of uh, of ministers, right? I mean, I think his father they they lived in Brooklyn, you know, very very nice uh, gentleman. Uh anyway, David Stragus was a a client for a brief period of time. And he would have his sermons at a hotel here in Manhattan. I don't remember if it was in New York or one of those places, right? And a very small, I don't know, maybe 50, 75 people would show up, and they would speak in tongues, and he would do, you know, the healing uh, of the, uh, on their heads, and they would roll on the ground. And uh, uh, and for the modesty's sake, they would throw, like, a, you know, a kerchief or something over the ladies. And uh,
1: That makes uh, it legit,
4: yeah. Yeah, there you go. And And, you know, I remember <laughs> asking him, okay, I remember asking him one time, uh, you know, Dave, uh, w- David, what do you think about your brother Frank strangers? And he said, you, you know what he told me? He said, you know, Tim, my brother Frank Strangers would be very successful if he gave up this UFO and valiant Thor nonsense and just did the hellfire and brimstone, but he refuses to do it. And, you know, I said to myself, well, he's darn right. If Frank were out just to make a buck, and he did do very well, uh, uh, you know, uh, for himself, I remember he always had a uh, a nice card that his uh, parishioners, uh, uh, you know, would uh, would uh, pay for. But that's part of being a you know a, a minister. He was friends like with nice Howard bunch. Menger
2: and everything. Yeah. I mean, he well, was yeah, 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 uh, yeah.
4: And and so I don't know. I tend I tend to uh, to uh, to believe that part of the story. I don't think he 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 made it up. I do. Believe, he did have a legitimate interest in UFOs. Otherwise, he would have just gone out on the road, made a few bucks, and gone back. You know, to his little. Uh, a place there in uh, Van Nuys, and he didn't do that. He would come and uh, speak for us and MCR programs for free. He would go to Giant Rock, where you would swelter under the sun for three mm. days to sell his little uh, newsletters and things along that line. So I give thumbs up to Brother Frank Strangers. Uh, I, I give the uh, – like um, uh, Stanton Friedman would say – I put that in my gray uh, uh, basket, but I, I tend to be moving it over to the side of something happening to him now. Whether it was a real uh, Venusian, we kind of doubt that at this uh, point because there isn't much life on Venus unless you happen to go there maybe on a Saturday night. Um, God, that's that so. That we old, know of, or yeah, that, that about. That's that's we know. Of, right? You gotta yes. look, you gotta look yes, under those that's cloud-covered real. layers, yes, right?
2: It. Yes, but look if that's real, that means that Frank Stranchys shook hands with Vice President Nixon that mm-hmm. um they put him up in the Pentagon and he was a shapeshifter who made himself invisible or he he well, transformed himself oh, into okay. a soldier and now, walked out well, of the Pentagon. No, you
4: got you got to figure that that was part uh, I mean, they knew he was coming. There was there was a, a woman who I think she worked at the uh, you know, the Pentagon some low-level job or something and she had asked Frank do you, do you want to go meet this fellow who's there at the Pentagon? He's been there for three years and so forth and so on. And Frank said, "Sure, but how do we get past security?" Well, now it's not tight security like today, but you can't just wander around the uh, uh, the halls of the Pentagon. I don't even think in the mid nineteen uh, you know fifties. But she told him exactly what to do. So I think the security guards knew that he was coming. I mean, this mm-hmm. this 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 was planned in advance. Now, for what reason? We can only speculate. Was it because there was really a Venusian there? Well, come on, we would uh, both, uh, you and I would, uh, would doubt that. But uh, maybe, it was di- maybe it was disinformation to see what the public would think about a, um, uh, you know, alive, uh, the extraterrestrial, uh, human-looking extraterrestrial the, the being here walking amongst us in our society. Remember, this was about the time of the day the Earth stood still.
2: Exactly. It was right at, it's right at,
4: yes. I yeah. remember that. All right. So well, I don't know. I, that, I I think I don't know. Again, eh, you know, I I give it a a fairly good chance of being somewhat uh, legit. And uh, of course, now Frank claimed over the years that he had an ongoing relationship with um, Val uh, Thor. About, and yeah. I I knew Augie Roberts, who took those photographs at Howard Menger's, uh, you know, uh, place. The ones that are in all the books, including Stranger to Pentagon. And Augie right. would ask me uh, year in and year out. Do you think that that's really Valthor? Is that really Valthor? Is he really from Venus? And you know, I tell him, Augie. I say, I don't know. You took the photograph. It does seem like there was that the group of people out on the lawn who belonged more in a uh, soap opera on TV than they did in a science. Ca-
2: I mean, it was central casting. But I mean, how, how did they? What, how yeah. did they? How did they
3: appear into the consciousness of people? How did they first say we're not central casting? We're aliens.
4: Well, you know, I don't. I don't know. As if, uh, let's say, for example, at uh, Howard Mengers, uh, if anybody really quizzed them, because I don't think at that point they had been revealed as being uh, uh, Val Thor, and I think it was his sister. Uh, Frank had Frank had uh, names for all of the, uh, uh, you know, uh, all of the, the the space people that he was speaking to. And there's even a, a fellow now who has done a uh, a short movie version of the, um, uh, you know, film of, of the uh, the book. Uh, Stranger right. at the Pentagon,
3: right? And, yeah, and I other, we had, other I people. He, yeah, I, sure.
4: I've had him on. I've had him on uh, Unraveling the Secrets, and uh, uh, he had quite a list of other people who had uh, also had met uh, Valiant Thor. So I don't know. There was this guy wandering around for a period of time who looked like the individual in the photograph who pretended or was from some other. Well, pan-
3: did uh, did Long John Nebel end up interviewing Valiant Thor?
4: No, no, uh, now long had Howard Menger for a yes, good, uh, for a, a good many, uh, you know, many a night. Uh, but uh, no, Valiant Thor, I don't think that anybody ever really uh interviewed him, but he did interview a gal by the name of Vi Venus. Back <laughs> when, Vi Venus? Vi Venus, yes. Back, you know, sounds legit so, to me, Nancy. Okay, yeah. now. <laughs> Come on, guys. You know, there are people here who claim to be walk-ins, right? I mean, who say that they are actually either have taken over the body uh, of uh, human beings who wanted to get out because they were not happy uh, living here on Earth or uh, possess bodies or uh, landed here and uh, are pretending to be Earth. I mean, there's different ways of uh, going about being an extraterrestrial, uh, you know, uh, amongst us. Uh, But by Venus was a gal uh, who was on Long John Nebel's show back around the time of Jim Mosley's huge indoor UFO conference in uh, 1967. This was at the height of the UFO hubbub. And Jim had 12,000 people over a uh, weekend at the Hotel Commodore. It was the largest indoor UFO conference ever held, and he still didn't make no money. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Wow. (laughs) but uh, oh well. Vi, Vi Venus uh, claimed that she had landed in a flying saucer in Central Park, and the the gal who was uh, she was taking over for uh, got into the ship and I guess went to Venus or uh, somehow they they ex- uh, exchange uh, you know pods or or what have you, and she went on the Long John Show and told a very. Uh, a believable story. In fact, if you you uh, go to Amazon and type in "Viva Venus uh, Star Child," there's there's a book. Of course, we we published uh, of her uh, writing and uh, uh, some of her memories from the planet Venus. And uh, she told this story, and she she packed them in, and then she went on a a, a tour, a brief tour of the country, uh, sang some folk songs, gave a few lectures, and then totally disappeared back into obscurity. Okay. Right, so yeah. I don't know. Should, you know, are are Venusians and aliens living amongst us? Maybe well, was in,
3: in, was Menger in, ever um, uh, put into an insane asylum or anything like oh, that? Oh
4: no, absolutely not. No,
2: nah. no, 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 no. he no, actually,
4: moved to Florida. I, yes, he did. He passed away. I think probably now about four or five years ago. His yeah. wife Connie. His wife Connie is still down there, uh, and and his family lives. Uh, well, the last I heard, they lived in Vero uh, Beach, and uh, you know he was he was a really he was a really nice uh, guy. Both Connie and Howard uh, mentioned were. I remember one time I was giving a conference in San Diego. Now that's a long haul from San um, Diego, uh, from um, uh, Florida. Well, Howard and and Connie got in their car and attached to it a trailer with a UFO or a flying saucer of one type or another that he had built to come on out and talk about his uh, experiences and to show us all the uh, the uh, StarCraft. Now, he had a, he had a very interesting uh, career, uh, Howard uh, Menger uh, did. Uh, you know, Gray Barker published a book called From Outer Space to You. And Howard mm-hmm. had claimed that uh, these uh, extraterrestrials, very human-looking, uh, rather attractive-looking, we're landing in the apple orchard behind his house in High Bridge, New Jersey. Now I have some confirmation uh, of that. Uh, there's a chapter in my book, uh, um, UFO uh, Repeaters: The Camera Doesn't Lie, where we actually uh, print a testimony from people who were out there and had experiences, uh, you know, on their own. But he was having he was having these craft. Land there on a regular basis. Now they kind of look like the Georgia Adamski, you know, bell-shaped uh, craft. And the men and Game women ships, were coming right. out of there, and and other people were actually witnessing them from a distant distance, talking to uh, to Howard, and then they would disappear, kind of into the uh, into the the gullies and trenches and all that were around there. And and then just uh, you know the, it went on for quite a while. But then Howard kind of changed his mind. Just when the book came out, uh, he decided to turn to to change his opinion on the subject and he was to appear on Long John Nebel's uh TV uh, show but he decided that he wanted to backtrack on the extraterrestrial theme and he said that his experiences were set up by the uh, the government that they wanted to see what the prolonged effect of uh, uh you know encounters with supposed beings from other planets would have on the the public so mm. gray, gray barker and uh, long john were kind of furious about this because they they would hope that uh, Menger's appearance on the TV show would spike uh, both book sales as well as uh, Long John's uh, career because he had been, of course, just on, on the radio, even though he had a huge audience. He wasn't on the T- TV, and he went on TV for 13 weeks, and I don't think it went uh, uh, very well for him, and the uh, TV show was pulled. I don't know if you can really blame it on Howard Menger or not, but uh, they would have liked to, I think, at some, uh, at some point. So, yes. Yeah, well, so yeah. Yeah. yeah, you
3: know, the- yeah. The air was out of the balloon, basically.
4: It was, it was. But then, but then again, years later, uh, when he came and spoke for us, he uh, he had, cha- he had uh, changed his opinion once again, and and started talking about extraterrestrials and stuff. So he was kind of the uh, a, a fence setter as far as this, a trendsetter and a fence setter uh, as far as all of this uh, uh, went, you know. And do I think that he had legitimate contact? Yes, but again, with who I have absolutely no way of knowing. But I did talk to people who saw some pretty weird things happen uh, at Howard's place. In Hy- I was Hy-
2: going to ask you. I was going to ask you about that because there is this one story. I guess Howard's son was very, very sick. They mm-hmm. thought he wouldn't make it through the night. Yes, and then miraculously, this kid came back yes. to life. And this one person—he yes. was a doctor. Yes, doctor Bethel, this- uh, Bethel Eric.
4: Doctor Bethel Eric Schwarz.
2: Right. He looked he, yes. up on hill a- and there was this creature. This. Humanoid creature yes. standing on the hill.
4: Yep, yep. That, it's a, a very, very impressive uh, story. But now I remember one time, and and, and this was uh, back when I was still living, uh, you know, at my parents' home. I got a call uh, one time from a a gentleman who I guess had heard me on the the, the Long John Show or something, you know. And he he told me about this experience that had happened to at Howard Menger. He said he had heard Menger one night on the radio, and he decided to get in his car. I think he lived in Brooklyn, or you know, not too far away. It was maybe an hour drive or an hour and a half drive to get to uh, Highbridge, New Jersey. And he drove out there, and he didn't know Howard, and he didn't tell Howard or anybody that he was coming. But he decided he was going to park in the rear of the property. Uh, you know, near the apple orchards, and see if he could see anything unusual. Well, he got there, maybe it was two o 'clock in the morning he 's listening to the show on his car radio, and all of a sudden he hears the birds chirping, and the sun is coming up right so something has happened he He thinks maybe he fell asleep because he could have been tired after that long drive, but after that, he started receiving. I guess you would say, say uh, telepathic messages or thoughts in his head. And he ended up uh, separating from his uh, his uh, wife, which was not uh, too unusual, actually. And he went and he bought himself a trailer to live in. And he started building all this kind of wacky contraptions out of metal and, 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 and hangers and all. It kind of reminds me of, um, oh... Um, uh, the, the fellow in in close in encounters, las- Richard. Yeah, Richard Driver. Right. Well, right, Richard. Dri- yeah, yeah. when when he's shaping the uh, uh, the, the mashed, mashed potatoes. potatoes yeah, the, mashed the potatoes. Part, yeah. Yes, in the in the kitchen and and turning it into the devil's tower. And right. and I talked to this fellow for a while, you know, on and off for maybe you know a few months, and he wanted me to come see his weird, you know, contraptions and all. But I I didn't have a vehicle, and I'm not sure where he even lived. And uh, I thought it was kind of At that point, I kind of thought maybe it was just too silly even to consider it. Uh, Today, uh, with my more uh, open-minded attitude towards uh, all of this, I probably would have been interested, uh, but then I, I I just wasn't, and so I never took it any further. But there were quite a few. I I remember one fellow telling me that uh, he had had some experiences on um, uh, Howard Menger's uh, property, and he thought that they, whoever they might be, were following him around. Because he was in Manhattan one time, walk, uh, walking down, let's say, Fifth Avenue or something, and somebody was gazing upon him. He, he had that feeling, and there was like a, a, a marker, like a laser um, you know, laser pointed at him, but this was decades before there were any you know, lasers right. or anything like right. that. And, and, and so some light uh, was, was following him around, and he thought it was uh, you know, because he had been out at uh, Howard Menger's and trying to establish contact. Though
3: <clears throat> we're going to be the, uh, taking the, a, we'll, we'll be taking a break in about two minutes, but right. we also want uh, to. This make is, them. yeah, this is sort of a good time to begin the Men in Black Ooh. entrance.
4: Yes, Ooh. you know,
3: so maybe when we come back, we will. Oh, yeah, well, you them. know
4: that 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 uh, four minute uh, episode, Bill, that you had me on UFO Hunters, it's gotten yes. something like a hundred and two thousand hits on YouTube.
2: <laughs> I know that was it. Yeah. A- that was, one of our, uh, uh, that was one of our great episodes uh, yeah. on UFO was the Men in Black. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to take our break now. It's the yeah. bottom of the hour. We are talking with uh, Mr. UFO, Tim Beckley, about really the history of UFO publishing and some of the events in the whole contactee movement. And we're going to be talking about Men in Black when we come back. So stay tuned, folks, to future theater after these messages on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio with your co-host Bill and Nancy Burns and our guest Tim Beckley and we are back after this.
0: That's 954-973-3374 Or visit KeyInformation.com
3: Hi, this is Solaris Blue Raven with Hyperspace on Dark Matter Radio Tune in on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for an intriguing show pertaining to covert technology, UFOs, paranormal, mysticism, and spirituality.
0: media pipe sewage into the eyes and ears of the masses 24 hours a day 7 days a week where do you go Is the president an alien, either Kenyan or Zeta? Did the fabulous sea monkeys ordered from comic book ads by kids in the 60s and 70s slither out of their tanks and into ears? And are they running the brains of the ruling elite today? Is David Icke right about the queen being a lizard? Or is there a sea monkey brooding on his brain like a jockey atop a chunk of horse meat? Are Lemurians beneath Mount Shasta really addicted to porn and chewing tobacco? Or are their spokesmen in the surface world deluded or deranged? From the answers to all these questions and more, to Tune in each week for another revealing and informative episode of Unraveling the Secrets. And get that sea monkey off of your brain. Here's a riddle for you. What do the California gold rush of the 1850s, secret societies, coded messages, mysterious 19th century flying machines, and an early 20th century outside artist named Charles A.A. Delshaw all have in common? The Secrets of Delshaw by Dennis Crenshaw and Pete Navarro. Go to www.secretsofdelshaw.com to learn more. Roswell, UFOs, Flying Saucers, Alien Abduction.
2: are back on Future Theatre Live, your co-hosts Bill and Nancy Burns, with our guest Tim Beckley on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio. And we're about to launch into our conversation about men in black. So, Tim, what has been your experience with uh, – I know
4: that – I think it was you that took that photograph uh, in I Jersey did. City. Yes, tell us about that. Okay, well, you know – I was always interested in the men in black. You know, I see a great deal in coincidences and synchronicities. I, I think that that someone is controlling a lot of the things that we see in ufology. I mean, you remember Charles Ford said that he thought that we were pieces on a, a kind of a cosmic uh, chessboard and we were under somebody's uh, guidance or control. Well, I kind of go along. Uh, with that. Now I don't know exactly what their purpose or their plan is or yeah, what their motive what benevolent, their motive is. Yeah, is it benevolent? Are they benevolent? Or- I I don't know. Maybe maybe we think in terms of, of being benevolent uh, and not being benevolent and maybe that has no rhyme or reason to them. See we're we're looking for intelligence that operate the same as we do and that's where I think that well, this whole thing uh you know uh, falls apart. So Back when I was in seminary school, no, back when I was in the fourth grade, I uh, had to do a book review. Right? I was not particularly good in English, which was ironic since we have about two hundred and seventeen books in print. But I, I thank Sean Castile for that because he manages to find every uh, comma that's out of place and every misspelled mm-hmm. word. And anyway, so. I had to do a, a book review, and I, I had read the books by Major uh, Donald E. Kehoe, you know, Flying Saucers are from Outer Space, and I think he did, an, uh, there was uh, Edward Ruppelt who did Report on Unidentified Oh my God, objects. Edward Ruppelt's uh, book? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, now, I, I had had a, my first of uh, three UFO sightings when I was 10 years old, so I was hep on the on the subject. You know, we lived in a house that had some poltergeist phenomena, and, and, and also, I was intrigued. I would take books out of the library, and... Uh, even listened to Long John Nebel, which uh, probably kept me up all night. That's probably why, in fact, I know that's why I'm a late-night person now. I still sign off at 5.30 when he went off the air. That's the time I usually <laughs> go to bed. So uh, I had to do a book re- uh, review. So what did I pick to, um, to review was a book by Gray Barker called They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. It was published by uh, University of... Um, University Press, Lyle Stewart's University Press. Mm. In fact, Lyle Stewart, along with one of his authors, uh, Frank Edwards, passed away on June 24th on the anniversary of Kenneth Arnold's sighting. But that, that's another a Synchronicity and another. Uh, uh, what what, what story. year
3: did he? What year did Lyle Stewart die?
4: Uh, you know, I'm not 100 percent sure. I think maybe 1978. It's not. It's not. It wasn't the same year that Frank Edwards uh, passed away, okay. but it was the same the same day. I think it was. Uh, okay. la-
2: I think it was later only because I knew yeah. Lyle Stewart. But anyway, yeah, yes.
4: Yeah. Okay. So I wanted. I had to review a book, and I picked this book by Gray Barker. I wrote a, a two or three page, a book review on lined paper with red ink. And lo and behold, I got a B plus. I never got a B+, in anything in my life, in school, certainly on an English project. So I, I I was kind of pleased with that. Well, little did I know that years later, that Gray Barker would publish my first three books, his Saucerian Press, and that he, when he passed away, I purchased from his estate the last 50 copies of that Book that wow. I had reviewed and gotten a, a, a B plus on. Oh well, that's wow. you know to me that's a that's a hip uh, you know uh, 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 synchronicity. So I had always been interested in the Men in Black. It was something spooky, especially when you're in the fourth grade. Comparing that to Major Donald E. Kehoe's flying sisters from outer space, it's a big difference, right? Oh, yeah. So yeah. Oh yeah. So you know that stuck uh, stuck with me, and I published a couple little pamphlets. Uh, the men in black and stuff. Uh, when I ran the occult center in New York in the, I guess the mid nineteen sixties, and I worked for Jim Mosley as Saucer News. Now, mm-hmm. uh, there was a fellow that was. All, I was managing a editor. I was actually there in the office. It was my first job a, as a uh, in the uh, in the publishing business, where I actually you know got the, got paid a salary. And over the years, I've edited something like thirty different uh, magazines, you know, pa- packaged or whatever the term is that we want to use. And uh, there was a fellow by the name of Jack uh, Robinson, who was also on the staff of the magazine, but he just really was a contributor. He didn't work in the uh, the office. But he was on the Long John Show, mm-hmm. talked about the Shaver mystery, uh, had meetings at his, um, uh, his uh, apartment in Jersey City. Well, now, Jack worked over in Manhattan at one of the banks. And when he started for work, he would take the PATH train, which takes about maybe 15 minutes to get from Jersey City, and uh, Mary, his wife, Mary Robinson, would go out and do the uh, errands in the morning and, and come back, you know, from shopping maybe an hour later, carrying those bags up two or three flights of, of stairs. Although I think maybe they lived on the first floor, so. But I just wanted to make it a little bit more tougher for her. So she <laughs> she, she, she would come back. She would come back with you know her uh, groceries in her arms, and as she approached the door, she would notice that there was a very stiff a uh, figure, stiff-looking figure standing in the doorway seemingly uh, watching uh, everybody who would uh, who was coming in and out of her apartment building. I don't think there was anybody really to watch in the apartment building to be honest with you, but Jack thought that his uh, files somebody was going uh, through them when he was not at home. He found some stuff, you know, like living on the uh, uh, laying on the living room floor. Nothing was missing, but stuff was scattered and he felt mm-hmm. like somebody was listening in on the telephone conversation. Well, that's pretty typical paranoia Paranoia for a, a UFO researcher, even today, right? I don't think mm-hmm. too much has right. changed uh, there. Uh, you know, so he, he would call us, uh, he and Mary uh, Robinson would call us and tell us about these uh, exploits, and, and uh, in particular about the fellow who was standing in the doorway. And And Mary seemed a, a trife bit frightened or taken hmm. back by this. So right. Jim and I decided... We're going to go and visit Jack and Mary Robinson, but we're not going to tell them that we're going, so that it will be a surprise, so that they can have their friend who lives in the apartment next door standing in the doorway, right? It'll be just uh, totally, you know, not set up in advance. So I stayed over Jim's. uh, uh, He lived at a hotel in Midtown Manhattan at that uh, that point, and we got up like at seven thirty in the morning, and believe me. Neither one of us would get up at the 7.30 in the morning. But we got in the car and headed over to Jersey City. Now, Jim was driving, and I was in the passenger seat. So we get to Main Street, which is where Jack and Mary were living. Mm-hmm. And um, sure enough, as we approach the building, there is a gentleman standing in the doorway, kind of recessed back and, and looking, uh, I would say, like a a, a stone Figure, but I don't want to be overly uh, dramatic, but let me be. Uh, so Jim hands me, uh, okay, hands me his camera, and I take a photograph of this individual. Uh, I take a photograph of what appears to be a black town car parked on the street. Well, now this town car did not belong there because nobody else had a town car. It wasn't quite that neighborhood kind of neighborhood, you know? Right. Okay, well, so. Did
3: it, did, it look, did it look governmental or mafia like?
4: Yeah, I don't know. A black car looks like could, it could be governmental or or mafia-like or belong to an MIB, right? I, I you know, It was a black kind of, kind of uh, you know. Come on, this was nineteen sixty-seven. I can't tell you that I remember every minute uh, detail about it. I would be lying. However, uh, Jim suggested, and I concurred that we pull around the block, and then uh, we should stop the car, and I should get out and approach this individual. Okay, so now cars were double parked on that uh, block, and it was a very uh, narrow uh, street, very hard to get through. So it probably took us all of maybe 10 minutes to to get around the block and approach the building once again. Well, when we got there, uh, there was no more MIB standing in the doorway, and the car had also vanished, uh, disappeared, driven off. And I thought to myself, well, that's kind of weird. Uh, because you know here are these cars double parked. It doesn't seem very likely that he could squeeze out of that space uh, so easily and and make an exit while we're approaching from the rear. So that was that was that was the episode in question. I got one photograph of the car and one photograph of this uh, individual. Um, was he an MIB? Well, you know, I, I don't know. I can't say for sure. But uh, we showed the photograph, of course, to uh, Jack and Mary, and they insist- insisted that this was the individual that had been, uh, you know, standing there monitoring the activities of those coming in and out of the building. But, you know, lo and behold, fellas, the uh, – the um, And lady. And lady, yes. And uh, I was catching my breath. Um Lo and behold, the incident stopped after that i I have a feeling that I may be the only ufologist that actually chased away a man in black. You know you always hear about how they're silencing people. I apparently silence this guy because he never showed up again now Hmm. if you look if you look at him he does look strange he certainly does okay certainly does okay well what you know what i find very strange and everybody agrees with this look at this guy's shoes they look like something that a fairy or an elemental or a troll would wear Uh, Not not a person standing in a doorway at. But uh, why,
3: why, why?
4: Well, I don't know. Just because maybe we can talk about it, uh, uh, you know, uh, four day, uh, four decades later on UFO hunters. You know, it it seems to me with some of these MIB experiences, they pick incidences that are not necessarily all that interesting just to bring them to the attention of people. I don't know. You know, there's various conclusions you could make. Now, ask me what I think uh, the Men in Black are go please tell us oh, okay well i have concluded that these are not cia agents they are not the fbi they probably are not uh... what i call the altered uh, terrestrials or aliens i think that they are humans who are under some sort of mind control as if they are actually zombies because they look pretty human uh, when they do converse with people, they sound human, but they talk very slowly, and there may be some peculiar things about them, but I don't think that they're extraterrestrial. And when it's all over, they snap out of it, right? And they have no recollection, recollection uh, of, of what they've been uh, involved in. They don't realize they, that they may have actually been responsible for scaring the heebie-jeebies out of somebody.
2: Well, with the, the funny thing is that in that same episode where you were on UFO Hunters, mm-hmm. we had a number of sketch artists because there were other yes. people who and these sketch artists and here's what weirded me out. Uh-huh. These were police sketch artists. And these were widely remember the guy he was friends with Johnny Sands, right. Johnny oh, yeah. I, talk to yeah. John, I
4: talk to Johnny all the time. Yeah. yeah. Oh well, how is yeah, yeah. He's, he? Was hey, a he's fun okay. Guy. He's still doing, you know, state fairs and I don't know, jumping through fire and whatever he does. Good for <laughs> him. Anyway, yeah. so so we had him relate his
2: story, fabulous story of a man in black, and we brought a police sketch artist in for him to dis uh, uh describe this creature. Yes. And there was at the same time, we brought somebody in in Trenton, New Jersey,
4: mm-hmm.
2: who also had an encounter. This was the whole Bucks County UFO flap. Yeah, yeah. Brought that person in, and the two sketches were identical.
4: Uh huh.
2: Thousands of miles apart, two sketches identical.
4: Well, you know, actually, if you go to my YouTube channel, which is Mr. UFO Secret Files. There is an interview that I did with Johnny Sands in a hotel room. Actually, after the show, how about that? Yeah, oh, wow. after the show that we did, we went up to the hotel room and I sat there with him. Not the best lighting in the world, but I, I I call my series of videos unfair, unbalanced, unedited, and believe me, they are. But boy, do we get the information out of him, and he he talks about this for you know for an hour, uh, going into slightly more detail. But of course, because of course, on the, any of these cable channels, they manage to. Cut out the, you know, a lot of the material which you would right. like to see, but is not uh, available because of the fact that they actually have ads. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yes. And so I am you, responsible for that. Yes. Yeah. 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 But you know, there a lot of MIB stories, and um, some of them seem to be pretty. Uh, legitimate and, and uh, unexplained you know? I don't know and, uh, and of course telephones are always being tapped and uh, you know, files are being
2: well I lost. will tell you the, I will tell you this true story so we are setting up the production offices in Santa Monica for UFO Hunters we've just gotten green lighted green lit for the first um, for the first season
4: wow what year and was that
2: Bill? this would have been 2007 early uh, two, uh, late 2007
4: god bless you
2: Yes, and so we just got greenlit and we moved from one part of Santa Monica to production offices in another part of Santa Monica and given all the producers that were coming in I mean it's always exciting setting up new production offices, they're coming in and so we had this Verizon phone guy and he, because we needed about 20 lines, right? Because all these people are talking on the phone setting up um, episodes and I see this guy and he's running – he's putting in this big box. This is really before – it, it's funny. It's 2007, but it's, it's less than 10 years ago, but it really is before wireless phones. Mm-hmm. So he's setting up this massive box in the back of the production office. And I see him running this red wire. All the wires are like these small phone cable wire. This, and, and, and this guy's running a, a relatively thick red wire. So I, he, he is trying to be – folks are oblivious to this guy, right? The phone guy is always oblivious to everybody. I see the red wire? And I say, what's that wire for? And he says, you don't want to know. And I said, I do want to know. What's the wire for? I said, I'm the producer. What is the red wire for? He says, that is something I'm not supposed to tell you about. And I said, oh, come on. You're from Verizon. You guys talk. What is it? He said, let's just say there are other people listening to your phone calls. And that's oh. all he would say.
4: Oh. Well, now, didn't you have a, a, an experience, though, where there was a UFO hovering outside somewhere and somebody was communicating with you or knew about what exactly was going on? And every time you, you mentioned this, the UFO would go away? That was the first episode that was never, ever aired. That was in
2: Las way. Vegas. That was in Las Vegas. Uh-huh. And actually, that episode was shut down. We, we, we captured – this whole thing started when there was this guy called Colonel X, Ben Wood, whatever his name was, Colonel X, who um, went public with the idea that there was a UFO hovering in the air over Las Vegas in the, Las, in the um, Nevada National Forest, right above Las Vegas. And it's when I really get into this fight with Stephen Greer over it because in the magazine – because he sent us photographs and Nancy built a really exciting UFO magazine cover. We still have that issue Uh of this object. It looked like a a shoe actually. It was kind of curved. And so Stephen Greer's group – Like Kenneth Arnold. Like Kenneth Arnold. So Stephen Greer's group sent out this guy, Raven – this person, this woman, Raven Star, Doctor Star to investigate. And but we were going to publish this, and they sent us a warning they called it a shot across our bow don 't you dare publish this? Well, you can imagine what I said to stephen greer so um, as we 're setting up for the first episode <clears throat> actually, gonna be more, actually
3: what what did you say to him
2: <laughs> something i can 't say over the air because keith won 't allow it so the um, ouch ouch so because uh, he 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 basically got me angry so we're setting Oracle. up to go to Maury Island. And I said, look, this is Las Vegas. Meanwhile, Jim Sanders, who's going to be on Art Bell on around August 19th. Jim Sanders called me and said, you won't believe what's hovering above. He lives in Vegas. You won't believe what's hovering above our house, right above the city, just over the city limits. There's this UFO. I said, come on, Jim. Jeez. He goes, I'm not kidding you. It is not the moon. It is not Venus. It is not a star. It's big. It's bright. It's unbelievable. So I said, okay. So we have this Colonel X. We have Jim Sanders. So I managed to convince everybody, let's take an early jaunt out to Vegas. We'll drive there. We'll bring a really big telephoto camera. I mean, a massive one. It's the one we used, I think, in uh, Area 51. Let's bring that. Let's get this thing on camera. Okay, so we all pile into a bunch of uh, SUVs, drive out to Vegas, go to Jim Sanders. Sure enough, there it is right over Las Vegas, this really bright light. It's not the moon. You can see the moon in the sky and it's just it's blowing me away. So we say, "Okay, fine. let's go up because there's so much light pollution in Las Vegas from all the casinos. Let's go up to the top of the mountain in uh, this national forest and see if we can capture it with the telephoto lens. So we do that. We drive up to the top of this mountain. We make a deal with the guy who owns a little restaurant up there to be able to set up our equipment there. We have a star chart that is um, integrated with the telescope. So we're getting these images on a computer screen. We take the photo. And we see this thing. And it, there it is, right over the horizon. So I am so excited. We've actually caught Ben Wood's UFO on camera. I walk into the restaurant and I start texting Nancy back at the office uh, that we got the UFO. I hit send. The thing disappears. And I go out. I said, what happened? They're all screaming. It's gone. I said, what did it do? They said, for some reason, the lights flickered and it seemed to go down below the horizon. Well, that was the end of that shoot. But we did get this thing on, on an SD card. So we drive back to Sanders' house, and Sanders says, what did you guys do? He said, the thing disappeared. I said, well, I don't know. I can't figure it out. So we're driving away back toward the hotel, and I get this phone call from Sanders saying, the thing is up again. I can't figure it out. Mm -hmm. So the person who calls me is Bill Scott. Bill Scott was Aviation Week. He wrote about uh, Deep Blue, the, the space plane. Bill Scott says to me, um, what did you guys do? I said, well, there was this object over Ve-. He said, don't you know what that was? I said, what? He said, that's not a flying saucer. He said, you, you guys saw an NSA listening post, probably Echelon or whatever it's called, but a listening post over Las Vegas, probably over area, out in the desert. That's what you guys saw. He said they were able to spot your license plates. They were able to read your text, and they were just funning with you. They were kidding with you to let you know they were there. Well, we get back to the office. It's 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 the next day, and we're looking at the um, images, and they're fabulous images. And so I said, "Boy, this will be this will be great to air. We actually actually caught something." Well, it turns out. That they actually got a hold of our parent company, which was Disney. Disney owns Capital Cities. Capital Cities owns A and E. A and E owns History. They got a hold of that company, and they said, "Shut these guys down and don't air the episode." Hmm. So it never. We have aired. two.
3: We have two minutes to go, and let's uh, let Tim, Tim take the two minutes. How can people? How can people find you?
4: Oh my God! I have to be the easiest person to find in the world. Good. I would think. Um, let's see. Uh, On YouTube, it's Mr. UFO's uh, Secret of Files. Back episodes up there of uh, Revealing the Secret, which is also on Angel. Help me out here. Is it SuperCloud? What do they call that? SoundCloud. 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 That's what it is. I'm sorry. Unraveling
0: the Secrets, not Revealing (laughs) the (laughs) Secrets.
4: Okay. And then then we have, uh, of course, uh, our um, Website uh, which is conspiracyjournal.com that we uh, share with Tim Schwartz. We have uh, Tesla's secret files, and if anybody wants to drop me a line and get a free catalog, they can do that at uFO 8 at hotmail.com. That's MrUFO8 at hotmail.com. But you can find me. You can just Google me, and you will find me all over the place. I'm rather uh, accessible. At least for the uh, uh, moment. Even for though the very I'm near semi- future. E- even though I'm semi-retired. Uh, well,
3: now we have another fellow who's just come out of retirement. His name is Art Bell.
4: That's correct. And he's
3: going to be on next, so I guess Bill will take us out.
2: I will take you out. Um, Art Bell's guest tonight. Stay tuned, everybody, for Midnight in the Desert with Art Bell on the Dark Matter Digital Network and – Art's guest tonight is a friend of ours, probably a friend of yours, too, Tim.
4: Absolutely Brent, wonderful Brent guest. Cameron, Absolute, a wonderful absolutely guest. Absolutely wonderful. Absolutely. And this, he, he, he's so much into the, the rock and roll and the, the music uh, thing because he thinks that's uh, one of the ways that the – well, I don't want to go. It's Art's show. Let him. Gotta go. Do it. Do gotta it. go. All right,
2: guys. So, everybody, thank you. Thank you, Tim Beckley, for coming on you. tonight. We appreciate it. Thank you, Angel. Thanks, everybody. We are your co-hosts, Bill, that's me, and Nancy. Burns Night. on wow. Future Theatre on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN for uh, broadcasting from Salisbury, Pennsylvania. Be with us next week for our guest Richard Grossinger. And stay tuned for Art Bell on Midnight in the Desert. And we will see you next week.